Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. I hope you have your pen and paper ready, investors. A lot of good stuff coming your way. The Straits Times Index up 2% since the beginning of the year. But if we look over the past 12 months, it was up only about 3%. So last year, the Straits Times Index did really well in the first quarter. At one point, it was up about 10%. And then it gave back those gains and traded sideways for the rest of the year. So the question is, what about 2023? Dividend investors, we all want larger payouts compared to to last year, I'm sure. So what is on one Dividend Hunter's stocks to watch list? He's known as the Dividend Titan. It's a terrific website. The founder, Willie King, joins me live right now. Willie, long time since we chatted. How are you? Yes, a very good morning, Michelle. I'm good. And welcome back (laughs) and a happy new year to you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be back and Happy New Year to you as well. Okay, so I, you know, we chatted about this and we said, you know, could we find out what is on your stocks to watch list? And I'm a little surprised that you have Maple Tree Industrial Trust on your watch list. We know it did well in a disappointing year for SREITs last year uh, in a challenging environment. MIT's trailing 12-month DPU standing at 0.1383 of a dollar. That's up some 3.2% from about about 0.134 about a year back. So tell me, why is Maple Tree Industrial Trust the second largest Singapore industrial REIT on your watch list? Yep. I mean, if you see Maple Tree Industrial Trust, a couple of months back, or even last year, it was a stock which I wouldn't touch it because at one point, last year, it was trading at a yield of about 3.8%. So that's pretty expensive for industrial REITs. But since then, the yield has sort of risen because shares have sort of sold off as a result of the high interest rates. And right now, it's about roughly about 6.2%. Now, the, the yep. thing about industrial REITs is that a lot of them you have to understand, unlike other sectors in the REIT market in Singapore, um, a lot of these REITs, uh, industrial properties, they have what I call a 30-year land lease. So after 30 years, the land which all these industrial properties uh, which sits on gets returned to the government. And as a result, as investors, we want to actually be we want to take note of this because as some of these properties get returned, the land and the properties get returned back to the government, the industrial REITs have to actually redeploy capital to invest in new properties in order to maintain the dividends or the distributions. And as a result, the, the, the return which investors want, you know, you want to have a much higher dividend yield. So back then, Last year, um, a lot of these industrial REITs, including Maple Tree Industrial REIT, the dividend yield is roughly about 3.8% to about 4%, which I think is very expensive. But now it has come down to about 6% plus percent. I think that there's some value in the REIT itself. I see. So looking at those 30-year land leases being released to the Singapore government, that's the main reason why MIT is on your list. Um, aren't most of its properties assets in, in the U.S.? Mm. So another thing as well is, unlike Maple Tree Industrial REIT, it has sort of evolved or transformed from where it was years back. So last time, it used to invest a lot in traditional industrial properties. But it has Mm -hmm. sort of changed that game and it has moved into more data centers. So right now, half of their properties are in data centers located in the U.S. And what's interesting is because, uh, like what you pointed out, Michelle, that at least these data centers are freehold properties. 
So this allows more tolerance for the dividend yield for, for investors. So last time, when most of their properties for Mipochim industrial wheat, their properties, they're all industrial properties, the dividend yield back then, you know, could go up to about close to 7%. But right now, because a lot of their data centers, a lot of their properties are in freehold properties, the required return for dividend yield for investors, you know, dropped to about 6%, which I think it's still pretty much, it is still very attractive here. Mm. So uh, this year, of course, a lot of hope that over in the US, the Fed is not going to have to slam the brakes so hard, um, not going to have to tame down recession, um, you know, inadvertently kick off recession with its interest rate hikes. So given the current economic environment, do you, what do you think of MIT being able to sustain that 6.2% for its dividend yield? Mm. So MIT, the management has recently calculated that if interest rates go up by another 2%, the mm-hmm. DPU will actually fall by sort of a mere 3, 3%. So that's not, that's not a lot. The impact mm. of the rising interest rates isn't that isn't hitting MIT really that hard on the DPU. And the reason why is a few folds. Number one, they have sort of a very well leathered debt maturity profile. So what do I mean by this is that coming next year, the, the year after, they don't have a lot of uh, debt to refinance, which means that MIT doesn't have to refinance at a much higher borrowing cost. So that's one. Another thing as well is that they have patched or protected their interest payment by converting the floating payment to a fixed payment. So whether interest rates go up or interest rates go down, MIT, most of N- MIT's interest payment are paid at a fixed amount, which is pretty good for MIT. And I think that this is something which as an investor or as a potential investor is something which uh, we could take comfort in this kind of rising rate environment. Yeah, and MIT has about 74% of its total loans on fixed interest rates, so that should mitigate some impact of uh, the possibility of rising rates. MIT last traded $2.25. Fantastic, Willie. Let's swing now to HR Net Group. That's a recruitment and consulting company based here in Singapore, a leading company on-site with recruiters across 14 cities. They own 12 brands, HR Net One, Recruit Express, People Search, And for the first First half of fiscal year 2022, it saw its placements fall 1.2% on year to about 3,691. Are you positive on HR Net Group? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting gem which I actually found because on one hand it's a dividend payer, but on the other hand, you know, for the Singapore market, there's most of the dividend payers or what generally investors see are either the banks or the REITs or property companies. But what yeah. stands out for HR Net is it is not a financial company. It is not mm. a property company. It is a recruitment agency. And for recruitment agencies, I'm surprised that a business like HRNet is able to actually pay out pretty safe dividends. I mean, like what you have mentioned, they are a recruitment agency. They also have a monopoly in the Singapore market in terms of the recruitment agencies. And, you know, they have a much larger revenue size than compared to some of the other more prestigious recruitment houses, like, for example, JAC Recruitment, uh, Con Ferry, and Robert Walters. So that, that, that sort of struck out to me. But one thing, what was more interesting or what was more impressive for me is that even though HRNet was a, is a recruitment agency, actually half of their revenue actually comes from what I call a flexible contract staffing. So flexible contract staffing is what HRNet does is that it actually hires contract staff Mm-hmm. pay them a salary under their headcount. 
But what's interesting is that HRNet in the long term doesn't have to pay for their contract staff because what they do is that they sort of uh, lease out or they, they sort of contract all these flexible contract staff to other companies. Like, for example, banks, when they hire staff, they might not want to hire a permanent staff. They might want, just want to hire a temporary staff. They can actually reach out to HRNet to hire some of these contract staff. So the bank pays the contract staff the salary plus a extra margin or an extra fee to HRNet. So HRNet doesn't have to, to, to pay the full cost of this co- contract staff. And what's interesting here is that HRNet has roughly about 54,000 contract staff under its payroll and they don't have to pay a salary for this contract staff because it's usually their clients who need this contract staff who would pay for them. So this allows HRNet to actually collect revenues with a very good recurring income because these contract staff are usually leased out for a couple of, a couple of months to a few years in terms mm. of contract workers. So this is, this is something which is pretty interesting to me for HRNet. And another thing is that they have a, a really a pristine balance sheet. Um, mm. For HRNet, they, they don't need to actually borrow money, so they have close to zero debt and a lot of cash. So on their balance sheet, as of their latest quarter, is roughly about $300 million. Compared to the liabilities which they have, the only liabilities which they have is the rent, you know, the lease liabilities, uh, which they have to pay mm. for their offices, but that's not a lot here for HRNet. Interesting uh, point about the company switching to short-term contracts. In fact, we saw the number of contractor employees for HRNet rising 11.7% year-on-year last year. Are you anticipating more sort of demand for such a, a flexible workforce this year? And is how, how does that translate to your expectations for dividend yield? Such an interesting company. At one point, it was paying out dividend yield of 8%. Now, I believe it's somewhere around 6.5%. Yeah, so to answer your first, first question, Michelle, yeah, so what we have seen last year, right, a lot of tech companies which are looking to actually downsize their headcounts and usually in the recruitment business, the first to go are usually your contract staff, right? And because mm. HRNet also deals with flexible contract staff, there could be a risk there. But don't forget, if you see for HRNet, over the past few years, ever since they started off in the 1990s, they got listed a couple of years back. Um, what's interesting is that they're very adaptable. And that's what really struck me because HRNet doesn't focus on one sector. So you could have HRNet going into a tech sector to provide contract staff. And then the next moment, you could jump into the healthcare sector, into the financial sector. So while if you see that a lot of tech companies might actually freeze headcount or reduce the headcount, but they are able to also adapt into other areas of the sectors in Singapore to provide contract staffing. And end of the day, the recruitment business in Singapore, it's, you know, to me, I feel that Singapore is moving in direction of a knowledge-based economy. So human capital, labor capital is actually more important than ever. And that's where HRTech really sits right in the middle of it in this case. So there's something which I kind of like here. And as a result, you know, they have actually paid out pretty good dividends because they don't have any debt which they need to service. That means they don't have to fork right. out a lot of cash to pay their interest. So a lot of the excess cash which they generate um, from their profit can actually go down to paying shareholders dividends. And they also have, you know, thought of the idea of also starting to buy back their shares. So this to me is sort of a reflection of what I call a capital efficient business where they don't have to pour out so much capital, you know, they don't have to pour out capital to build factories, build huge equipment, expensive plants and all that. 
all they need to do is to basically expand the headcount under their team, right? So getting more recruiters and getting more contract staff under them so that they can actually uh, uh, leave out or sort of put out these contract workers to companies who need them. So they can just expand it this way. So that's the interesting thing. And one thing which sort of struck me here is that a lot of Singapore companies tend to be very localized, meaning that they tend to dominate well in one particular geography, but when they go overseas, you know, they get attacked by different competition. But HRNet, they are able to actually scale beyond Singapore, right? So recently, you know, they, they, they actually pour in about a million plus dollars of capital in Taiwan, in Taipei. And they also have other presence across Asia. So at least one third of their revenue is actually coming from outside Singapore. So there's something which, it is something which is surprising for me, especially for a Singapore company where most of these businesses, they tend to be very much localized. But it's very different for HRNet. Such an interesting company. Thank you for putting it on our radar. He's Willie Kang, Dividend Titan, and he's joining us live right here on Money and Me, 1019 on the clock. Willie, Manulife US REIT is on your stocks to watch list. Listeners, it's the first pure play US office REIT listed here in Asia. It invests in a portfolio of income producing office real estate in key markets like the US, 12 properties under their name, some $2 billion in assets under management. Just about a couple of hours ago, there, there was um, talk in the headlines, in the news headlines, about how bad 2022 was for unit holders of Manulife US REIT. Market value of their units at the second last trading day of last year was down nearly 54%, and then things got worse December 30th when investors learned that the value of property assets held by Manulife US REIT would be marked down by almost 11% to less than $1.95 billion. And some say, looking at Manulife US REIT, it's got a leveraging problem ahead given rising interest rates are expected to continue at least for a while more. And you're seeing hybrid work arrangements increasing, adding to the uncertainty factor in the office property sector. So why is Manulife US REIT on your stocks to watch list? Yeah, I think this is something which um, came across. I actually attended their call, I think, um, two weeks back, just before the the year ended last year. I thought that the communications which they put out for Manual Life was pretty good. I think they were willing to engage unit holders. Um, the reason why it's on my stock to watch uh, list is really more because of me being cautious of the REIT, uh, not so much of it as potential because the, it is one Singapore REIT which came where the gearing ratio is actually close to the MAS gearing limit, which is close to 50%. So, um, and Manual Life US REIT Gain ratio is right now at 49%, and it's really the result of a fall in their property valuation. I think it's not so much about the asset itself, but I think it's, they are quite unlucky in that sense because last year, as interest rates really went up, where central banks were you know, going out full scale on a full scale war on inflation, right, raising their interest rates, many like US REIT also saw some of their tenants actually starting to exit. So, for example, one of their largest uh, property in the U.S., which is the Figuera property, saw one of their major tenants, which is T- TCW Group, exiting from the physical space there because of some renovation issues. Also, one of the law firms called Queen Emmanuel also exited uh, or downsized their leases in F- Figuera uh, for Manulife U.S. So, they sort of have a double whammy. On one hand, you have rising interest rates. 
And at the same time, you have their tenants also exiting. So that's something which is sort of a risk there for many live US REITs here. And the thing about both of these tenants is that they are actually paying under market rent. So many live US REIT, they might have a chance where they are able to actually uh, revert some of these rent into market rents. So if I compare Manulife US REIT to, say, your prime US REIT, Capital Pacific Oak REIT, even though you have the uh, rising interest rates, but Capital Pacific Oak US REIT, which also deals with US offices and prime US REIT, their occupancy rate isn't as badly hit as Manulife US REIT. So I think there's some form of risk for Manulife US REIT. The interesting thing here, the reason why it's also on stock watch list is because the share price is down like more than 60% since it got listed. That means that based on the last 12 months dividends, it's roughly about an 18% dividend yield. So it's really quite a juicy dividend yield here. The thing to ask is whether it's actually sustainable. Um, if you see for many life US we one thing we struck out to me, the risk here is that U.S. officers are still giving very mixed signals into their rent itself. Because if you look at the U.S. office macro environment, the macro risk still signals that it's still kind of a very sluggish leasing market. Even though lease has sort of been stabilized, but the leasing volume has sort of came down compared to before COVID um, itself. So a lot of the work from home arrangements are starting to really put a pressure on many of these U.S. officers itself. So when you're on that call, I wonder if you got a sense of uh, the manager or the sponsor group for Manulife U.S. REIT and their strategy. I mean, this must be quite a defining moment for them in terms of, you know, what they're likely to pull off. Did you get a sense of their strategy ahead? Mm. So that's a great question, Michelle. So on one hand, the sense is I think that they are probably going to have to reduce some of their assets or restructure some of, of their assets. Um, they have already hired a financial advisor to sort of overlook how their assets should be reorganized, which could mean uh, reducing the size of their portfolio because their gearing is high. So at this point, it's very difficult for them to actually reduce their gearing by not selling down assets. So selling down assets is actually one possibility to reduce their gearing. That means raise capital, pay down their debt so that they can reduce that gearing, uh, that gearing ratio of theirs. That's one. Another one mm-hmm. is to try to improve the rent which they have in their offices. So because of the work from home, envi- uh, work from home arrangement in the U.S., which is putting a lot of pressure on these U.S. offices, what, what I'm seeing, which many of these offices, um, these landlords which are doing, and what many life USB is doing, is basically to try to hospitalize hot- um, some of these offices, which means making the offices look a little more premium. Uh, that means adding cafes, um, expanding the lobby to make it more prestigious, and then raising the rent for the tenants who are leasing out these spaces. So that's actually one way. Um, another way is to look to, to diversify out of U.S. offices itself, so moving to other right. sectors, like what Escort mm. Residence Trust is doing uh, during COVID, mm. where they actually moved into student accommodation. So uh, many like U.S. we could be actually doing this, where they could actually divert or diversify their, their, their strategy from being a pure play U.S. office to a different subsector in this case uh, to sort of diversify that risk. So these are some of the things which they could do in order to sort of mitigate the high gearing ratio or the high leverage.
Fascinating. Manulife US, uh, read note of caution there from Willie King. Let's switch gears and look at SATS that is going to be holding its EGM on January 18th for its shareholders to vote on the proposed acquisition of air cargo handler Worldwide Flight Services. And we've been talking about this uh, since it was announced last year. You remember its CEO said SATS aims to reduce the size of its rights issue uh, after there was a sell-off over fears of a potential $1.7 billion cash call, right? So help us understand what you see panning out over the WFS deal. Mm. So just a quick backdrop, I mean, last year they actually announced this deal to, uh, to buy out World Flight Services. Uh, it's a huge acquisition, which costs roughly about $1.8 billion. The, there is an extraordinary general meeting, an EGM, which will come uh, this month, and is ready to put a vote on whether to approve the acquisition itself. Tomasek, which owns roughly close to 40% of stats, have already said that they will actually approve into the deal and also subscribe to potentially subscribing into the rights issue. So um, this is this is a good point for stats. But one thing which I don't really understand here, right? Like the question is like why why are they you know going into this business? I mean it's water under the bridge. But if you see where the business is going, on one hand, worldwide services. Is considered the world's largest or is one of the world's largest cargo handlers. But if you look at the financials, you know, they have very volatile revenues. The operating margins for WFS have actually came down over the last few years, which sort of implies that cargo handling, even though they sort of dominate the, the global market share, but it also means that it's a very capital intensive business in the global stage. So set acquiring WFS could see themselves, um, for me personally, them struggling trying to maintain this kind of global dominance in the cargo handling business. Because if you compare SETS and WFS, before SETS look have, have actually gone out to actually buy WFS or even before COVID, SETS have a really strong balance sheet. It's an asset-like business, asset-like business. Highly capital efficient business. They are written on equity, uh, which is a sort of a signal for their capital efficiency. Is roughly about 14 to 15 percent on average um, compared to WFS. This is actually a much um, lower figure. So them buying, them having a much healthier balance sheet, buying over a company even though it's much bigger, but the the financials might not be as strong as sets. Could see themselves struggling trying to actually have what I call this synergy. Firstly, and, and another thing is trying to actually play out the cargo handling business. All right, there's a lot of excitement on January 4th when Comba Telecom Systems, the wireless solutions provided, uh, completed its secondary listing on the Singapore Exchange. In fact, Comba was the first company to list on the SGX main board this year. When you look at its financials, Comba says it sees growth emerging from India where it concluded a, an auction back in August 2022. That was a 5G spectrum auction. And it's also looking to boost revenue from 5G base of station installations over in China. When you look at the books for Comba, are you optimistic about where it's going this year? Mm. I mean, what they're trying to do is basically to diversify out of their mainland business. So a lot, half, at least half of their revenues is coming from China, they are also looking to break into India as well. But if you see, that's actually a small part of their revenue segment because um, they don't just also sell to China and also in, in the greater part of Asia, but they also sell to the US, to Europe as well. Um, and that contributes 
a a a a, a sizable oh sorry a small portion of their revenue to their total overall revenue itself then trying to diversify into india sort of tells me that they are actually some sort of a, a competitive pressure in china because Combat Telecom is not just the only wireless telecom provider or antenna provider solutions, but there are also many other competition around. Because if you see for Combat Telecom, over the last few years, their revenues haven't been growing that steadily. On some years, it has gone up. On some years, it has gone down. Uh, even during COVID itself, um, they also went into briefly into net losses as well. So them trying to diversify or move, their, move into a different market could sort of signify them moving out of China and trying to diversify that revenue source. So for them to actually move in to get a secondary listing, um, my take here for Combat is, I guess, is to really have that, firstly, a different source of funding, seeing how the Singapore dollar has actually been stable versus some of the emerging market currencies. And that also includes the Indian, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Indian rupee. So them coming into a secondary listing allows them to sort of, number one, diversify their source of funding, but also helps them to prepare for a more international presence for their business. Really interesting. And a boost of 5G deployments, I'm sure, will be a boost for its business. So we'll look out for that this year as well. Willie, always great to speak with you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Michelle. He's Willie King. You can check him out on Dividend Titan. That's the name of his website. He's the founder of Dividend Titan himself. Joining us live on Money and Me, I'm Michelle Martin. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.